Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan. I'm a co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Patty, how are you? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely fantastic. We uh, missed a week that was outside of our control, um, but we are back again. Absolutely. And if you see me biting my lip in this podcast, if you're watching, it's because I've been on a busted lip and it, my tooth rubs against it. It's sore. So uh, nah, he's just trying to be all like that. angsty and everything. He's like, mm, bite my lip. Yeah. Watch. Trying to be sexy. Yeah. <laughs> um, today we're talking about mental health. And in particular, we're talking about the role that exercise plays in mental health, both preservation and the improvement in mental health. So, now, Gary, in before, the last episode, let me before we get into this, though, go ahead, go what, ahead, go ahead. What gives you the absolute right to talk about this? Because I am depressed out of my mind and I exercise loads. That's why. <laughs> and that's, no, that's... In, all seri- <laughs> in all seriousness, I have experienced uh, bouts of depression in my time for sure. And I'm someone who exercises a lot. And I think one thing that's important as a, a preface to this discussion is that just because there's an intervention that leads to improvements on average does not mean that that's the solution for everyone. And it doesn't mean that if you've tried that, that there's nothing else that can improve a given outcome. So for example, if you're coming at this conversation, trying to improve your mental health and you're saying, oh, well, I already exercise 10 hours a week. It's not like exercising more is going to be the solution for you. Okay. In some cases it might even be exercising less, but in general, we see that exercise seems to be quite a potent contributor to one's mental health, and therefore it's something we encourage quite a bit. In the previous episode, we touched on exercise, the brain, and neurological disease. And in that, we touched a little bit on mental health. But the reason we didn't include include it solely in that discussion is because we can't necessarily reduce mental health down to you know any one area of the brain or any one neurological mechanism and that's something that's really important to understand that mental health is to some degree emergent in that it's contributed to of course by neurological mechanisms but it's probably better to understand it in a sort of a biopsychosocial manner if you will you know in that you're considering the biological contributors the psychological contributors and the social or environmental or environmental contributors to one's mental health because if you're able to do that i think you're then better able to understand the role that exercise plays in particular because as we move through this discussion we won't just be focused on specific neurological mechanisms but also some of those uh, psychosocial considerations in terms of uh, the role of exercise in self-efficacy, for example, or allowing one better social engagement, spending <clears throat> time with people, etc. So the first thing in this conversation is to try our best to define our terms. And a simple definition of mental health is the emotional, psychological, and social well-being of an individual. So it's not as simple as just being happy or feeling good all, all the time. It's sort of this integrated state of being where you've got that concordance between your emotional, your psychological, and your social state. And as a result, it's not just about the emotions. It's also about, um, yes, your emotional state, but also how your psychological state enables you to integrate with the world around you. Because an example of where this might be of relevance would be, let's say someone has a bipolar affective disorder. 
when someone is in a manic state uh, with bipolar, they feel unreal. They have endless energy. They feel fantastic. They don't want it to end. But we know that although the emotional state might be positive in some sense, the integration there between your psychological state and your social well-being is severely compromised and often leads to downstream effects. So it's not just as simple as happiness, because we might say that, oh, well, if someone's on heroin, are they in a great state of mental health then? Not quite, because it's not just that acute emotional state that's of relevance. <clears throat> and this is a really important, especially with regard to the way people in the modern society, at least, kind of think of mental health. And what I mean by that is people will say, oh, I don't know, I have depression, right? When in reality, they're actually just depressed, right? And like there, there's this kind of, it's really hard to define, but there's kind of this gradation of it. Like you can be depressed as in like you are in a low mood, you are sad at the moment, and that can lead you into a state of depression, right? In terms of like you you have depression. Now, the words around this, like people change their minds on how you should describe it. Like, do you describe someone as being depressed or do you describe someone as having depression? You know, as it like it's a medicalized term, whatever. We're not going to get into semantics of the words, <clears throat> but it is important to, to realize that you can be sad and not have depression. Right. Because in the modern world, people think that unless they're happy all the time, then, you know, something's wrong. Something's, you know, bad in their life. They need to, to change something. Right. Um, and that's, I think, is really important to understand about mental health that, look, if you lead a shit life, right, your, your surroundings are shit, <clears throat> your prospects are shit, everything in your life is shit. You know, you're probably going to be depressed. Right. That doesn't mean that you have depression necessarily. It can mean that you have depression you know this is especially true if you've grown up in you know your, your childhood has been very what we say traumatizing you know like you live in a deprived neighborhood etc like there's so many things that can actually lead to downstream effects in your mental health years later but also it gives you this way out if you are just sad a lot of the time where like doing stuff like exercise can really help because all of a sudden it you're able to get out of the house. You're able to go talk to other people. You're able to integrate more into society rather than just sitting in your, your house at home and being sad as a result, you know? Yeah, and I think in general, when you're talking about mental health, one of the things that I try to get people to understand is that like for it to be of clinical relevance, what we're often concerned about is that your life circumstances and your your mood or your emotional state are discordant in that if you're, if you've, let's say, just suffered the loss of a loved one and things are going poorly at work and there's a lot of negative things in your life and you're feeling sad or depressed as a result of that, that's a normal emotional response. So that's not the state of chronic depression. It's the state of a normal, rational, emotional response to your circumstances. If, if anything, that is good mental yeah. health. It means that you're appropriately exactly. you know, responding to the environment. Exactly. And that's a great point because that's kind of goes back to what I said about bipolar previously. It's not just about positive emotion to have, to be in a state of good mental health, to have 
appropriate mental health. That's probably a better way of saying it, appropriate mental health. You want to be able to respond appropriately to events in your life, whether that be with a positive or a negative or a neutral emotional state. So in the case of someone, let's say, who has anxiety, to think about a little bit different from depression, we might say that it's totally normal to be anxious if you're starting a performance of some sort. Maybe you're going out dancing in front of a crowd or you're boxing in front of a crowd or you know, you're know you competing in, in competition. You actually want some level of anxiety because that's normal and appropriate for the situation. Um, however, if you're so incredibly anxious about going outside the house that it's affecting your normal social well-being and it's affecting your financial well-being, et cetera, then that's something that's very much discordant. It's a discordant response between your emotional state, that state of anxiety, and your life circumstances. So this is a constant theme as we go through uh, all of these states of ill mental health. You know, it, you might say the same about, for example, uh, ADHD, for example. You know, there are states when it's normal to maybe be a bit more um, alert or to be lacking in concentration or to feel like you're hyper excitable. There are some circumstances in which that's appropriate. For example, if you're um, in an anxious situation, you have to be very alert and you're trying to do something really quickly. You have lots of things to pay attention to. That might be a normal sort of hyper excitable state. But if you're sitting down to just do your homework after school or you're studying or you're reading or you're at mass or something that's just a bit more of a calm environment, then that state of being for someone with ADHD is discordant with their circumstances. And therefore, that's when these things start to move into being of clinical relevance to allow someone to live in a state of appropriate mental health in the world. 100%. Anyway, we won't get too bogged down in the overall definitions. How does exercise play into all of this? Yeah, so exercise in almost <coughs> all states of deranged mental health let's say um is of benefit and this occurs in the clinical and non-clinical state so when i say non-clinical i mean you know the the normal ups and downs of everyday life you know you might not have depression but your mood is low you might not have generalized anxiety disorder but you're feeling anxious in general what we see is that we get improvements in these states in response to exercise. So if you're feeling not great and you go out and you exercise, you generally feel better. If you feel quite anxious and you have an exercise session, you generally feel a bit better after. This also extends into the clinical realm. And the question is, why? You know, why would this occur? And there are a number of different uh, physiological or biochemical mechanisms that would lend themselves to modulating someone's mental health. So a lot of people have heard about endorphins and these are basically endogenously endogenously uh, produced substances that can have sort of opioid like uh, effects in some sense uh, and feel good neurotransmitters so to, so to speak so there's this this modulation of the chemicals that are actually released within the brain in response to exercise that lead to the end outcome of feeling good during or after an exercise session the role of endorphins themselves has probably been a little bit overstated over the years. You know, everyone thinks of the benefits of exercise and mental health and they just say, oh, it's the endorphins. It's not so simple. You know, they might play some role. It's kind of hard to say, but it's more so the overall picture that we'll talk about. So that's involved. Just, just on that as well. 
like it's important to realize that just because endorphins play a role doesn't mean that they are to be all and end all again like you said it kind of gets overplayed it kind of becomes this thing where people say oh you're gonna have those feel-good hormones you're gonna have those feel-good endorphins after exercising and if you're someone who's let's say depressed you might exercise and not feel good (laughs) you know you might not feel good in response to exercise you might not get this happy neurotransmitter profile and this like oh i feel great after exercise i have this like rush of endorphins like you might not get that like you might be in such a state of anhedonia like a lack of you know excitement we'll say that even exercising is not going to give you this you know runner's high or any of those different things that people use to describe it so that doesn't mean that you then just say oh exercise is not going to help right because there are also chronic effects of exercise which is probably more akin to the stuff that we're going to talk about now in a second and people seem to overly focus on the transient you know and i think this applies mostly to depression because you can again you can be in such a state of anhedonia where you're just like no i i I know i probably should feel good after exercise everyone says they do but i don't you know i don't i don't get any high from exercise it's just it just is you know um but over time while exercising you'll probably notice that your depression is lessened you know that's not always the case but again we'll get into that absolutely then there's there's neuroimmune and neuroinflammatory mechanisms that are modulated in response to exercise as well and this actually sounds like something that's very vague because i'm saying modulate i'm not saying increase or decrease or improve or uh compromise because when you look at the the role that inflammation and the immune system plays within the brain in particular this is it's such an evolving area of study and it's something that's only really been understood to a greater extent over the last few years really or is receiving a lot more attention and that includes the role of the immune system in the pathophysiology of depression and other Uh, mental health disorders so just know that exercise plays a role here like it reduces inflammation to some extent but exactly what that means like it's not as simple as just more information more inflammation or less there's also this just changes in the way that the the nervous system behaves uh, because the nerve or the immune system behaves rather the immune system in the brain is a little bit different to uh, the rest of the body uh, because the the nervous system the central nervous system has this sort of privilege in some sense in that it doesn't receive everything that comes from the rest of the body. You've got this blood brain barrier uh, that is somewhat impermeable to lots of different compounds. And as a result, it's just a little bit of a different environment. So just know that exercise plays a role in improving the function of the neuroimmune system and the regulation of inflammation, and that that probably plays a role here as well. Yeah. There's also I, I did my final year project in, in college on that. And like there's so much here. And there's sex differences as well that go into this. And there's both, again, like you're saying, kind of more immunomodulatory effects of exercise. Um, but there are also biochemical changes that occur. And there's also like we'll call them physiological changes in terms of like different receptor density, different expression of certain proteins, different like cascading effects in metabolic pathways there's so much that goes on that is influenced by we'll call it neuroinflammation both positively and negatively you know some things it's you're inflamed for a reason and the adaptation is there for a reason but 
exercise does play a role in modulating that inflammation. Absolutely. And beyond that, then there are a few other mechanisms. So improved cognition is probably one that's worth paying attention to. So your brain generally works better in response to exercise. And this is probably an outcome of some of the previous or some of the other mechanisms to be mentioned. But that improved cognition uh, plays into the role that exercise plays in mental health as well. And part of this is related to uh, brain rewiring or neuroplasticity. We just we discussed neuroplasticity in quite a bit of detail in the previous episode when we touched on exercise, uh, the brain and neurological disease. But we know that exercise has pretty potent role in terms of increasing uh, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, um, also vascular endothelial, endothelial growth factor vgf igf1 some of the other things that we discussed everyone calls it vegf and you say vegf i know yeah but that's vegf injections like yeah people do say vegf but uh that's like a medical normal thing. people most do. people don't know that no that's medical jargon <laughs> normal people don't know that um so you get neurogenesis you get angiogenesis and all of these things play into the plasticity in the brain and as a result uh, changes in the brain that could potentially improve mental health you also get an improvement in vagal tone, which is the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system in response to exercise. That's one of the mechanisms that contributes to a reduction in resting heart rate and that also has effects on uh, your psychological state or mental health. So all of these different things play together as physiological and biochemical mechanisms to impact the way that the brain functions and also the structure of the brain over time. So overall, they contribute to better mental health. 100%. And again, you can spend a lifetime looking into all of these different mechanisms and like minor little pathways and everything, and you probably still won't scratch the surface. Exercise is truly a shotgun. You know, it's just like, it might not be the best thing for any one singular thing, but it's probably the best thing we have to get all of the different things at once. You know, that's why we kind of see it as a, a baseline practice rather than a treatment. You know what I mean? That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. hundred percent. Anyway. So other than these kind of more mechanistic stuff, is there anything else? Like why, why would exercise play a role? So you, you talked earlier on about this kind of like biopsychosocial model. So we're not just focusing on the biological stuff. There's other stuff at play here, isn't there? Absolutely. And there's, there are some hypotheses that um, try to model or provide an explanation as to some of the higher level behavioral or cognitive contributors um, to why exercise would uh, benefit mental health. One of those is uh, the distraction hypothesis. And this is, of course, exactly what it sounds like, that exercise has somewhat of a distracting effect. Um, a lot of people will... We actually, we touched on this in the previous episode where I mentioned that when you're doing something like jujitsu, let's say, or you're dancing, or you're doing something where you're very focused on the skill that's taking place, you end up somewhat with a lack of attention that can be paid to any other problems in your life. And that that potentially has uh, an improvement or a, a contributing factor to better mental health. Similarly, when people are, when people are out on a run, although their mind might be in a place where you'd think that it would focus on all of your problems very often that doesn't seem to be the case in terms of what people actually report so even if someone's out for a three-hour run 
they generally find that that gives them some sort of cognitive space. It frees their mind in some way. They can allow their thoughts to uh, roam freely between different things they're thinking about. And it doesn't seem to be the same negative rumination um, or catastrophizing mental state that often occurs when you're just, you know, sitting at home on the couch wondering what to do next. So there's a degree of distraction and there's also a degree of modifying exactly what it is you're drawing your attention to and how you think about those problems that probably contributes here as well. And then there's something that we talk about that as well. Like it, this is also why people would suggest getting into a flow state is good, but you don't have to use exercise mm. for this. Like if you have a hobby, a passion, like playing music, for example, or drawing, like if you can get engrossed in that, like you've basically distracted your brain from thinking about this stuff, the the negative mental health stuff. You know, if you have depression and you're able to go out and, you know, do a, I don't know, play your saxophone or whatever it is that you do, you know, and you get totally engrossed in that, you kind of distract yourself from the depressed state or the anxious state or whatever. Now, to what degree you're able to do that if say you're depressed you have anhedonia you have absolutely no desire <laughs> to do anything even if you know it generally leads to you feeling better that's obviously an issue like it's hard to get started with this stuff or to actually do the stuff that you enjoy you know but getting in that flow state is really beneficial and this is one of the things that and i know we both have a bit of a, a resistance training bias you know we think resistance training is fantastic this is one of those things where i think resistance training kind of falls down on right because yeah you kind of have to be in a flow state in the zone while you're lifting the weight right um but you're generally going to have like two to three minutes or longer maybe even of rest in between your sets right so it's very easy to get undistracted if that makes sense if you're saying that exercise distracts you from the other stuff you can kind of go well i'm sitting down here for two to three minutes and now i'm ruminating again on all those different things that i had going on in my head whereas if you do something like we said in the last episode like jujitsu or a combat sport like you are immediately brought into the present like you see all these new age gurus and all this fucking you know, whatever hype stuff going on, like, oh, you need to, you need to be present. You need to, you know, focus on being present. Like you, this is clearly coming from people who have never done any kind of sport because sport just forces you to be present. You don't have to work on it. You don't have to spend the next 20 years. Oh, I have to try to be present. It just happens. It's just, boom, you're there, you're present. You know, if you're doing jujitsu and someone's trying to choke you out you have to be present you can't just be like oh i wonder what i'm going to eat later or actually mary said that thing to me two days ago what did she mean by that like you can't be thinking about those things you know you have to be 100 present or at least 99 <laughs> present you know so exercise in general that puts you in that kind of focused state that flow state is probably better than exercise that doesn't put you in that kind of focused flow state but even exercise that doesn't put you in that focus and flow state is better than doing nothing. Yeah, I do agree. And to be honest, I find that if I'm doing resistance training on my own, especially if I'm just doing it at my home gym here, I find it very easy, especially if I have my phone to just ruminate or catastrophize or think about the problems of work or whatever it happens to be. Whereas if I'm in the gym with a friend, and we're, you know, holding each other accountable to rest periods, all that sort of thing. 
I find it much, uh, much easier to actually get the positive mental health benefits. And then in terms of the hierarchy, as you move up to something like jujitsu, where I'm fully 100% present, that's like the best for me. And of course, that's going to vary uh, by person. But I think you should think of those different variables in terms of, you know, is the exercise continuous or interval? Um, is it something that you're forced to be present um, in throughout? And then finally, are other people involved? And also, I suppose one thing that would be a bonus to that again would be the, the environment as a whole. So are you out in nature? Are you stuck in a dark gym? Those things probably play a role as well. So there's multiple different variables there in terms of the exercise characteristics that would go beyond just your how many reps, how many sets, et cetera. And the second part of the kind of main hypotheses related to uh, the, the cognitive components, I guess you could say, would be self-efficacy. And this is something we talk about all the time when it comes to, uh, we talk about it in, in terms of pain, we talk about it in terms of your uh, psychological approach to training, to nutrition, et cetera. Self-efficacy can be thought of very simply as your kind of belief, your self-belief, like you, you demonstrating to yourself that you can do something. Uh, do you feel that you're capable of improving? Do you feel you're capable of performing? And exercise has a really potent effect here. Resistance training is a great example of this one because if you start in the gym and you feel useless, you feel unfit, you don't feel like you're strong or capable of improving and that's your core identity, and then you're adding five kilos to the bar every week and suddenly you're deadlifting your body weight, you start to feel that sense of self-efficacy where you say, look, when I implement a plan and I regulate myself, I regulate my behaviors and I expect some sort of reward to come and that reward then comes, that's such a positive lesson for life beyond just the gym. It shows that you implement a plan, you do it well, you stick with it, you get the positive outcomes, and then you potentiate yourself to be able to get more positive outcomes as you continue to execute that plan. So it's a real feed forward cycle. It shows cycle you're here. in control of your life, you know, yes. or it gives you a sense of being in control of your life, which is, you know, especially in depression, like I think the self-efficacy model or hypothesis is most notably applied to depression and it makes sense like if you feel like you're in control of your life you're in control of your destiny like that's much much more positive than feeling like oh the whole world's out to get get you or you have no no ability to influence your outcomes you're just oh everything's fucking shit you know like obviously building self-efficacy in a depressed state is hard to get that going but once you do get that going and you see the positive you know, effects of that, it becomes this positive feedback for or feed forward loop. Yeah. And, and you can think of that as well in terms of the subgroups of people with depression, because if you look at the two extremes, let's say you can have people who are, who have depression, who are the sort of high functioning group, you could say. So they're, you know, they're getting after it. They're doing everything from the outside. It looks like they're doing everything they should be in life. They're going to the gym, they're eating well, they're, you know, pursuing their goals, etc. But there's still something missing for that person. It's probably going to be less impactful to go to the gym and see self-efficacy because they've seen themselves do well already, but there's still something missing that's contributing to depression. However, on the other side of the spectrum, you've got the extreme of depression where someone has no energy at all. They've got no momentum. They're stuck to the bed in some cases, and they're just unable to get themselves to do anything. Any improvement in terms of self-efficacy for that individual is going to have a huge effect 
So you have to think of this in terms of the individual with a given mental health condition as well. And that brings us to kind of the, the final mechanism, I guess you could say, that we might consider to be of importance, and that's the social component. So in general, exercising reduces social isolation. This isn't always the case. Like maybe you picked a, an individual sport and you don't talk to anyone else who does that sport. But even in the case of individual sports, like let's say, let's say you're an endurance runner. In general, when people take off something like endurance running, they'll begin going to forums or they'll follow people online or they'll talk to their other friends who run. So there's some degree of social connection, even, even in the absence. Even that, on top of that, like you, when you're going out for your runs, you actually see other humans. Yep. You, know? you forget how beneficial that is. Like, again, if you're just sitting in your house and you see no other humans, like you interact with no other humans, like that's very socially isolating. You know, like we're hypersocial animals. We're supposed to be out with other people in our tribe. You know, we could argue that, you know, humans never evolved to be in multi tribes, like, you know, huge. You know, if you put a chimpanzee and tried to do the same stuff that humans do, you know, they would all just like say you put chimpanzees in, I don't know, a, a cinema together. They would all just rip each other apart, you know, unless they were part of the same family, the same tribe, whatever. Right. Whereas humans can do that. And we should make, take advantage of the fact that we can get social benefit from even just seeing other humans in the world. Absolutely. And all of that put together <clears throat> contributes to better mental health. And now we can discuss maybe some of the specifics of each, uh, each category of, of mental health. Yes. So we've mentioned it a few times, but depression, Gary. Yeah. So we've talked on, we've talked about most of the mechanisms already. There are some more, I guess, specific mechanisms that might be of relevance to uh, depression in terms of the, the neurotransmitters, for example. So we see enhanced uh, serotonin and noradrenaline signaling. That is somewhat of uh, like, it's not always a consistent finding. It's not, it's difficult to study because um, peripheral neurotransmitter metabolism is different to central neurotransmitter metabolism. So as a result, it's sort of hard to, measure exactly what's going on uh with neurotransmitters unless you uh, do biopsies of someone's brain which <laughs> brain biopsy mm. isn't exactly what you'd want uh but there does seem to be uh some evidence of, of uh, modulation of this signaling and then there's other things related to serotonin metabolism in particular that might be of relevance. So we've talked about this in relation to sleep before, where we said the tryptophan, which is an amino acid, is one of the precursors to serotonin. And tryptophan metabolism also has another pathway, which is referred to as the kynurenine pathway. And kynurenine can be metabolized into one of two uh, other compounds. And along this pathway, these two compounds are quinoloic acid and kynurenic acid. And one of these is neurotoxic, and then one is neuroprotective. So effectively, what happens is in the presence of exercise, it seems like there's a reduced conversion of kynurenine to quinoloic acid, um, and more of it is converted to kynurenic acid. And this seems to have a neuroprotective effect as opposed to a neurotoxic effect. And this is one of those kind of emerging mechanisms. Then that's why we didn't mention it at the start, because it's kind of 
somewhat specifically depression probably plays a role but it's an emerging mechanism that warrants further study but it's again just one of those additional things that supports the role of exercise here and overall when you think about depression the pathophysiology and the role that exercise might play we can think of four pillars that contribute to the euthymic state and the euthymic state basically means that you have an appropriate uh, mood you have an appropriate uh, regulation of your emotional state and these four pillars are bdnf brain derived neurotrophic factor and the neuroplasticity associated with that um, the neurotransmitter side of things specifically serotonin and norepinephrine or noradrenaline then you've got your HPA axis, which is your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which can be thought of basically as the stress response. And then finally, inflammation and the role of the immune system. And in these, in this euthymic state where someone's in a state of good mental health, you basically have somewhat of a balanced contribution from these factors. Now, in the depressed state, it seems like there's um, dysfunction or overactivity to some degree of the inflammation and the HPA axis or stress component, and then a, somewhat of a, a downregulation or reduction in the BDNF and the uh, neurotransmitter components. So you could think of them as like pushing the others out of the way. And then if we exercise, what ends up happening is we sort of restore that balance. And that's what I, what we've discussed there already, where we get this improvement in the regulation of the stress response and the response to stress hormones like cortisol. We get um, a reduction in inflammation, and then we get an improvement in the neurotransmitter and the neuroplastic uh, contributors to mental health. So that's sort of uh, one model to try to explain how these different pillars contribute. Yeah, and you do also see different changes in response, not just in like the actual brain, but in the periphery, which then goes on to affect how the brain works. And um, you see different changes in receptor subtypes, estrogen receptor, yeah. cortisol receptor, um, you know, you, you do see these peripheral and presumably central changes in some key pathways. You also see changes in metabolism, like we noted with the tryptophan kynurenine pathway, which I personally actually don't put a huge amount of stock in, but that's just, just me. Yeah. It's um, just kind of emerging if you will. Yeah. Um, and I've done a lot of research in this area and I really like metabolism. So take from that what you will. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's there, there are other changes in metabolism, but also other changes in terms of how your overall metabolic machinery works. For example, if you do a lot of aerobic exercise, you get a lot of mitochondrial biogenesis. Like you forget that the mitochondria is responsible for the actual like metabolism of so many different things and the actual like anabolism or creation of so many different things in, in terms of the body, in terms of, let's say, even, you know, sex hormones, like the mitochondria plays such a role in that. And that's why you often see people like runners have the highest testosterone, even though, you know, you would think, oh, weightlifters, because they're, they're jacked out of their mind, clearly they have high testosterone, but the mitochondria plays such a big role here that, you know, it's going to be the runners that have the high T, right? Um, so there are other changes <clears throat> that potentially influence depression because we know, for example, just the reason I was saying testosterone is because we know having low testosterone, for example, can lead to a depressed state, right? So there are some baseline functions that you have to tick the box with to make your body actually work how it's supposed to work. And it might not be any like a treatment effect. You know, you might not be, oh, I'm depressed and I exercise and it fixed everything, but there is a preservative effect in terms of 
you do you take the boxes with these key pillars exercise etc and that puts your your body in a state where you're less likely to get depression you know absolutely and i suppose like one of the questions that you have to ask jumping off the back of that is well should i just exercise and not take medication like what's what's the role here are they comparable and to be honest it's probably surprising for some people um particularly if you're of a medical bias but you actually do see comparable effects often uh, between exercise interventions and those of pharmaceutical interventions for example ssris now there is some or seems to be some resistance in terms of the you know recommendation of exercise within the guidelines compared to other therapies but so this could be related to one just residual skepticism that all oh, exercise can't really have this effect but i think there's probably more to it i don't think it's just that i think the other thing is that there's concerns related to the question of efficacy versus effectiveness so what that means is that right if we get people to exercise in a controlled trial in a controlled environment that's fine but if we recommend a person that's coming into let's say a gp's clinic or a psychiatrist clinic if we tell them to go in go in and exercise one are they going to do it and two is the effect of them doing it on their own without kind of support follow-up guidance etc is that the same as uh giving them a medication that's very easy to take on a daily basis so those questions kind of remain to be resolved and i do think that excuse me, you'll probably see a lot more talk about the role of exercise in depression and a lot more specialized study in terms of who might benefit and who might not and how best to implement it. Um, so to some degree, I understand why it, it isn't as widely prescribed as such, because it's sort of a more difficult thing to prescribe, you know. Um, but you should know that like SSRIs, which are the most common type of medication prescribed for depression, a lot of people won't respond. So about half, uh, sometimes people will say a third, but a third to a half of people uh, won't respond to an initial SSRI treatment. And that means that you basically have 50% or more reduction in the depressive symptoms from baseline. And then only a third of people will actually remit basically to the point where they've taken the medication and now they don't have depression anymore or have very little symptoms. And Unfortunately, about 20% of people will stop taking SSRIs because of side effects that they experience. So when you look at this um, evidence as a whole, we can see that exercise should at the very least be an adjunct therapy in that people should be doing it alongside other therapies, whether they be psychological or pharmaceutical, and potentially could be uh, something that leads to improvements or remission in and of itself. Again, we just don't have the granularity in the evidence to be able to compare things very well and to actually say who's going to benefit and by how much. But I do expect to see more of that in years to come. Yeah, and it's a very hard situation because even if you're a psychiatrist who believes that, you know, oh, exercise is going to play a really, really key role here, right? It's hard enough to get people with depression to just take their SSRIs. Yeah, <laughs> like never about exercise. Literally, they're not going to, if they're not taking a pill, right they're like that's too much of a struggle to do to remember to do that whatever barriers are in their way to being able to do that do you genuinely think that just going oh yeah you should exercise three to five hours per week like most people are not going to do that it's also hard enough to 
like if you're going to try build out this multidisciplinary team, you're a psychiatrist and you go, oh, I want to have a psychologist that I can refer to that maybe does CBT or something with uh, my depressed patients, right? It's hard enough to get them to commit to do <laughs> going to the psychologist to do the CBT, right? Imagine then having to go, oh, well, I actually have to find a really well-qualified exercise professional that they can go to three to five times per week to help them with their exercise, right? Like it just becomes more and more unlikely the more you ask of someone to, to do something, right? And then we have to factor in the cost. Like who's going to pay for all of this? Is it the state? Is it the individual? Is it some sort of insurance model? Like what's going to happen there, right? Because currently personal trainers, for example, are not part of the medical system, right? We would argue that they should be, but like you're not going to get your insurance to pay for your three times per week uh, personal training session, even if you have depression. Now, I know on the NHS, they do stuff like um, you can, if you have depression, for example, you can go to get a note basically for your employer to say like, this person needs to exercise, needs to be excused to exercise whatever for an hour per day, right? I know you can do that. I know, I know individuals who have done that, <laughs> right? Um, I don't great. think that's the case. I don't think that's the case in Ireland. I don't, I don't know. think so. You know? um, so there is a role or there is a place for this. Um, but again, it's just unlikely to actually be integrated and to actually be done by the individual. So it makes sense why, oh, here's a pill, just take the pill. It makes sense why that would be the first and almost last <laughs> point of call. Absolutely. So that's depression. What else? What else does exercise help? So it also helps anxiety. And uh, through some common mechanisms with those related to depression, for sure. Uh, but also, I suppose, like one of the things to think about when it comes to anxiety is that anxiety, to some extent, is basically a, a hyper stressed state in that anxiety is kind of characterized by a lot of the features that you'd have in an acute stress response. So for example, an elevation in heart rate, you feel a bit more emotionally reactive, um, your cortisol is up, your sympathetic nervous system is up, and you get all the effects um, that result from that. Now, in general, in response to exercise, particularly as you begin to improve your aerobic fitness and you have higher vagal tone, you've got a lower resting heart rate, et cetera, your baseline physiology is further away um, from that state of anxiety. So there are still some mechanisms that would be shared with what we discussed previously, for example, the distraction hypothesis. So if you're quite anxious and you exercise, there's probably some element of, um, of that at play as well. And then there's uh, the improvement in aerobic fitness. There's the improvement um, in uh, vagal tone and the modulation of the mechanisms that we discussed previously. So overall, exercise reduces uh, anxiety both acutely and chronically. And again, we see these pretty pronounced effects taking place. Yeah, and there's a hard, there's a few situations where exercise might not be the best tool, but might also be the best tool. For example, I know actually two individuals that have health anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. And effectively what happens for them is as soon as their heart rate starts elevating, they think this is it. I'm done. I'm never going to be able to get my heart rate back down. I'm fucked. 
you know, they basically think their heart is going to explode out of their chest, right? So you might think in those individuals, well, the, the key here is to kind of shy away from getting your heart rate elevated, right? But in reality, like that's just not going to be a viable option if you try or you intend to live a happy and productive life in the world. Like, what are you going to do when the, the elevator in your building is out and you have to climb up the stairs? You're just going to go, no, sorry, I'm not going to work today. You know, I can't, cl can't climb up the stairs because my heart rate's going to get too elevated. I'm done, right? No, you are going to have to find a way to get accustomed to that feeling and then being or feeling at least in control of that situation you know so stuff like breath work can really help with this but you're going to need to at least at some stage elevate the heart rate and get more comfortable in that elevated heart rate state and then also see the the end outcome of that which is oh my heart rate does go back down to normal right so there are some anxious states that you would maybe think that exercise doesn't play a role here but exercise potentially plays an even bigger role absolutely and there's probably another thing here as well and we'll, we'll talk about the downsides of this later um but that is that like if you're very anxious about like maybe you just have kind of low self-confidence low self-efficacy and that contributes to your anxiety often when people exercise they feel fitter they feel a bit better in themselves they might feel more confident in their clothes etc all of that can maybe reduce uh, social anxiety for people as well. Um, if they feel like they have a higher level of confidence and they're more confident around other people and they have that greater self-efficacy. So we'll talk about maybe some of the downsides there further on. But yeah, from an anxiety perspective, exercise helps. Similarly, stress, which is somewhat related to anxiety, but distinct as well. Generally, exercise helps with uh, stress management. So this includes, um, you know, the the stresses of work it includes you know the stresses of uh finance and family etc up to a certain point of course if you're exercising so much that you are you know pushing your responsibilities to the side then that might make you more stressed but in general you become more resilient to stress in response to exercise you get some of those mechanisms that we discussed previously at play so for example we mentioned in depression that the hpa axis um, or the stress response, that that was one contributor to the depressed state, also contributes to anxiety. And naturally, it obviously contributes uh, to stress and exercise generally re reduces overactivity of this response. Um, it also helps that you have something else to focus on other than just your work, other than just financial stressors, and also uh, getting you out of the environment, the environment that might be contributing to your stress. So maybe you've got a real busy household, you're working from home as well, you never leave the house. If you're getting out of the house to go to the gym or to get out for a run, then exercise plays a role here as well in terms of just get, giving you a better lifestyle. And of course, there's a contribution here from just getting out of your head. So you're focusing you're being distracted, like we mentioned previously. You're being present. You're being in the moment. In some cases, people can get into that flow state, that meditative state during exercise, and all of that contributes to better management of stress. Yeah, and I think it's it's like stress is probably the most obvious one that exercise yeah. helps, right? Because there's so many positives to it. And also, the whole principle of exercise or at least resistance training, there's a big focus on it, is this like kind of concept of progressive overload, which is basically just 
stress overload right like you basically get more accustomed to a higher stress on your body you know heavier weights and then you build or you adapt in response to that right so it makes sense why oh well i'm going to stress myself in the gym which will then make me more resilient to that stressor in future right so there is this very obvious you know uh interconnection here where if you're building your stress resilience in the gym there becomes there's this kind of overlap with your stress resilience in the rest of the world you know um but other than that adhd gary does exercise help with adhd you tell me no (laughs) yeah no it, it does exercise does help with adhd adhd is often thought of as a like you have this classic kind of like a caricature of like hyperactivity, you know, that's the, mm-hmm. Oh, this person can't pay attention. So this inattentive form of ADHD. And then you also have this like hyperactivity form of ADHD. And that kind of makes the whole discussion of ADHD, just a caricature when in reality, ADHD is an executive function disorder. Right. So you need to think of it in terms of like someone with ADHD, they'll know what needs to be done but for some reason they just can't do it. Right. And the reason for that is they don't have the same, we'll call it dopamine signaling just to really, you know, bring it all down to a very finite system. It's not all just around dopamine, but basically you get dopamine, you know, dopamine is excreted, we'll say, or secreted, I should say into your brain. Oh, cool. Now I'm motivated to go do something. I do something. I get this feed forward loop. I, you know, uh, this is all great, right? In ADHD, that's not really how it happens. Or if you do get that secretion, it is quickly cleared. So you don't get as much of a motivated sense or a sense of urgency even to do different things, right? So you're never able to really prioritize what needs to be done. And you're constantly jumping back and forth between things. And you have like, a, it's basically like having a million tabs open in your head, right? Exercise generally leads to a reduction in the symptoms of adhd now there's a load of different proposed mechanisms for this a lot of the stuff that we've covered already feeds into this like having a clear goal having a plan of action actually seeing the feed forward mechanism of that like oh i I completed the plan i committed to this i saw that like so there's skills that you learn from exercising that then help with the symptoms of adhd but then the actual like biochemical stuff also seems to help with ADHD. And again, this could be related to dopamine. It could be related to, you know, increases in mitochondrial function, which, you know, they, dopamine plays a role there as well, or dopamine is in the kind of, or sorry, I should say the mitochondria are in this kind of pathway of dopamine synthesis. And um, so there's a whole host of biochemical stuff, but just from an actual patient perspective, exercise really does seem to help with reducing the symptoms of ADHD. I often describe ADHD as having a flow of water going through your head. And in that flow of water, there are a million different ideas. You're like, oh, here, do this. Oh, do this. Oh, you could be doing this. Oh, what about this? And exercising seems to just turn that water, that stream into like a trickle. It's just like, oh, there's just, you know, I'm able to follow one thought true to its conclusion rather than getting five centimeters into that water, jumping onto the next thought, going onto the next thought, going onto the next thought, right? So exercise really does play a role in that. Some exercises or some forms of exercise seem to be better. Aerobic exercise, in my experience, seems to be the best for that, but all exercise does seem to be beneficial. You also see improvements in concentration, motivation, memory, and mood, and which obviously plays a really 
key role in helping with the management of ADHD. There also are other, like again, biochemical things that are related to this. You see boosts in dopamine, norepinephrine and serotonin levels, again, all playing a role in moving from that, you know, archetypical ADHD phenotype into more of a, you know, productive in the modern society phenotype, you know? So basically exercise, you know, does lead to a reduction in the symptoms of ADHD. Absolutely. So overall, of course, there are other mental health questions as well, but overall exercise positively impacts mental health in the vast majority of cases. However, there can be some downsides. Before we go to the downsides, let's just quickly list off the positives. So you have better stress resilience, Mm -hmm. better information control. That's what we'll just call it. You have a sense of empowerment. You get potentially some of these feel-good neurotransmitters. We didn't mention it at all here, but there is a reduction in comorbidities. Like you will see people with depression becoming overweight, obese, and then, you know, further potentiating their depression and also not feeling great about themselves. So there's a reduction in the comorbidities. It gets people socializing and there's a whole host of biochemical stuff, which we don't need to focus on too much. But as you said, there are some negatives. There are some negatives. And in general, this isn't the case in someone who's exercising and dieting, let's say, properly. However, there can be an excess focus on physique that can make mental health worse. So obviously, if someone ends up in a position, let's say they're let's say they're exercising loads, but it's part of anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, then of course that would be a case where that would make mental health worse or would be part of poor mental health. However, it doesn't have to be that uh, clinically extreme to be uh, of negative consequence. The best example of this would be when someone, uh, let's say, does a photo shoot or competes in a bodybuilding competition. And after that, they really, really struggle to accept their body as they begin to gain body fat again, even if they're leaner than 99% of people. So they really struggle with that and that can compromise mental health. And it can also compromise mental health if just generally your whole focus is on your body and you have poor body image. So body dysmorphia is something that um, a lot of people will struggle with and will find their mental health compromised as a result of. And this is where, you know, you might be bigger than 90% of people in the gym, but you feel tiny. You're constantly comparing yourself to people you're seeing online. You feel like you're making no progress. You hate your body. Even if it looks better than the vast majority of people's bodies, you're not comfortable even wearing a t-shirt because you don't want your arms to be out. You're not comfortable taking your top off, et cetera, et cetera. All these types of things can be uh, not the result of exercise, but related to the process for which you are exercising. So that's something that is of great relevance here and of great relevance to the physique focused audience in particular. Now, there's also an excess diet focus that's a component of that. So that's related to if you're trying to stay lean all the time, you're trying to, you know, diet to an extreme extent, you've got orthorexia where you have an excessive focus on clean eating and those types of things. Those can all be related to poor mental health as well. And then there's exercise abuse, which can take place where you have a total overdependence on exercise for feeling normal and ways to identify that you might be on that spectrum would be if you don't exercise for a day, 
does that like cripple you? Is that something you're unable to accept? It's something that will make you super anxious. That's something that I would question then. I've been in that place in the past myself where I definitely would have been very uncomfortable with taking a rest day. I would be very uncomfortable if I hadn't exercised. And often this relates to the nutrition side of things as well, where people will feel that if they don't exercise, they're not entitled to eat. They don't feel they've earned any of their food and they'll drastically reduce their calories uh, if they don't exercise. So this is somewhere on that spectrum of disordered eating, but also exercise abuse or over-exercise. And then finally, there's more, I guess, explicit overtraining, which can happen in athletes who are doing exactly what they need to do or in non-athletes who are just totally overdoing it. So if you're training far too much, you're training far beyond your capacity to recover, this can compromise both your physical and your mental health. People have probably see, probably experienced this at some point in time where maybe you had a super tough week of training, your motivation drops, your mood is a little bit lower, you struggle with sleeping, you feel a bit more irritable. All of that is uh, somewhat uh, negative mental health that results from the process of overtraining. 100%. There are probably other negatives that we're just not acknowledging, yeah. but we do want to just make it clear that... <clears throat> exercise isn't this be all and end all it's not like oh you have depression just exercise it'll all be better because you often see that kind of perspective like propagated online and it's just it's not actually all that helpful like yeah exercise is going to play a role here in you know a variety of different mental health conditions but it's not a panacea it's not like oh just start exercising and you can give up the drugs like that's it's not the case you know so it's not a cure-all there are probably negatives again that we're not explicitly stating here um but in general we would argue and a lot of the scientific community would argue that exercise plays a beneficial role in keeping your mental health in a good place and then also bringing your mental health back to a good place would you agree with that Absolutely. I'm very pro-exercise, as you can probably guess. And I think for most people, it's going to be uh, of great positive influence on mental health. Fantastic. Anyway, Gary, I think that's everything, unless you want to talk about anything else regarding exercise and mental health. No, that's absolutely everything from my perspective. So if you'd like further guidance on how to best exercise or manage your nutrition, we do have coaching spots available and you can find information about that in the description box below. You can also get far more free information that we put out by following us on social media and also subscribing to our weekly newsletter, both of which are in the description box below. And then you can also get educated. So if you're interested in becoming a nutritionist, getting a certification with triage, doing our nutrition certification course, then you can do so. So we're accepting uh, students, if you'd like to sign up, you can drop us a message or you can just go straight to the description box, purchase your subscription and uh, get involved. So that's uh, pretty much everything that we do. Obviously, you're a listener of the podcast. So we appreciate when you share it. We appreciate when people leave ratings and reviews. Uh, it really does help to spread the good word of triage. And other than that, uh, we'll see you in the next one. Fantastic. Goodbye.